This morning, I invite you to draw your sword and turn to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Today, I want you to hear the very word of God. And let it be known this morning that we are called to rise and shine. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. But I will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are a few sounds in life that are extremely disturbing. One such sound is that of an alarm clock. There is nothing gentle or kind about an alarm clock. It rudely reminds you that it's time for a brand new day, especially when you're fast asleep early in the morning hours. It is, quite frankly, annoying and abrupt. It jolts you into reality. It, it startles your senses. And if you're fast asleep, it will jumpstart your circulatory system. You wake up and your heart is pounding and racing out of your chest because the alarm clock reminds you it is time to rise and shine. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, it is Jesus who sounds the alarm clock to the church at Sardis. He tells them and he tells all churches of all ages, it is time to rise and shine. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The best thing that Jesus can say about this church at Sardis is that you used to be alive. He really has nothing else positive to say. The best thing he can say is that you used to be alive, but now you are not. Now, who is making such a statement like that against the church? It's Jesus. Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven spirits of God in his hand. And he holds the seven stars. That phrase, the seven spirits of God, can sound confusing until you realize it can also be interpreted the sevenfold spirit of God. All throughout the book of Revelation, numbers are extremely symbolic. The number seven is the number of totality and completion. So what Jesus is saying is that he holds in his hands the full total display of the Spirit of God. And if you think about it, 
a church that is dead, the only thing they need is a revival. The outpouring of the Spirit of the Lord. A generous downpour, outpour of God's Spirit upon his people. And Jesus says, I'm the one who holds the sevenfold Spirit of God in my hand. Jesus also says he holds the seven stars in his hand. That's an echo of Revelation chapter 1 verse 20. It's there that the seven stars are identified as the seven angels of the seven churches. The word angel could also be interpreted as messenger, and many have understood that to mean the pastors of the church. So Jesus is saying, I hold the pastors of my churches in the palm of my hand, and every pastor is a representative of the people. So by default, what Jesus is saying is I hold not only the pastors, but all of my people in the palm of my hands. So Jesus is telling this dead church, a church that used to be alive, but now is on life support. He tells that church, listen, I have you in the palm of my hand and I have your remedy in the palm of my hand for I have the spirit of God, the sevenfold total display of God's spirit. So the one thing you need is the one thing I can give, which is a generous outpouring of God's spirit upon your life. So Jesus says to the church, I can accurately discern whether you're alive or not. And if you are dead, I can give you that which will wake you up again, which is none other than the Spirit of God. The problem in the church at Sardis was the same problem with the city of Sardis. Sardis was a very proud town. It was a town that had a great reputation, rich in history. But things that happened along the way and the city of Sardis was not as glorious as it once was. There was a time when the city of Sardis was known as the crown jewel of Asia Minor. It was nestled on a mountain range. It was high, lifted up, supported by rugged terrain and cliffs. Because of its location, it provided natural protection. No foreign enemy would try to invade the city of Sardis. After all, they'd have to navigate up that rugged mountain terrain. They would never want to do that. To insulate themselves in Sardis, they added another layer of protection, just like every ancient city. They put a massive wall around the city. And at certain points along the wall, they built towers and had watchmen that were supposed to look and guard the city. And from that tower, the watchman could see if any invading army was coming and he could detect that invading army long before it ever made its way halfway up the mountain. So the people of Sardis always felt very comfortable and confident and secure. They were very self-sustaining. There was a, a city that was uh, very proud of herself. It was a city that had everything that was needed. There was wealth, there was prestige, there was a great reputation, there was great history, there was great protection and security, had everything that you could want. In fact, the phrase capturing Sardis became synonymous with doing the impossible. People in the first century would say, um, it would be easier for us to put a man on the moon than to capture Sardis. It would be easier for someone to do brain surgery than to capture Sardis. Capturing Sardis was, uh, became uh, significant. It became synonymous with doing something impossible. For everyone thought, who in the world would dare try to come and capture Sardis? 
If they even attempted to, they wouldn't be able to because of the rugged terrain and because we have watchmen and they're looking our, and they're guarding us and there's no way that we could ever fall. We are Sardis, a city that was very proud. Well, you guessed it. The unthinkable became reality. In 546 BC, it was the Persian army that invaded the city of Sardis. You think to yourself, how in the world did they do that? The invading army sent one soldier up the mountain, just one. He navigated the rough, rugged terrain. He climbed up that mountain. He went up and over the wall, undetected, not even spotted by any of the watchmen. He went into the city incognito, just looked like a regular person living in Sardis. He went to the front door of the city, the gate itself. He opened the gate from the inside. And there on the outside, the Persian army. They invaded the city, and in a matter of days, Sardis fell to the Persians. You've heard it said that pride comes before the fall. That's the city of Sardis. They were so proud, there's no way that anybody could come and invade us. Oh, but they weren't prepared for just one enemy soldier. Just one insignificant, subtle advancement. Just one enemy soldier. You've also heard it said that those who uh, fail to learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Such is the story of Sardis. About 300 years later, 214 BC, it's Antichus III who has read the history books, he knows how to take Sardis, so he sends 15 soldiers up the mountain. You think to yourself, now wait a minute, I can get and I can understand how one soldier could go undetected, but 15? Are you kidding me? Well, it just so happens that those 15 soldiers went up closest to the tower where the watchman was not on guard. He had fallen asleep that day. He wasn't at his post. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. There was no watchman. And so because of that, 15 soldiers were able to navigate the rough, rugged terrain of the mountains and the cliffs. They made their way up and over the wall. And just like the person 300 years earlier, they too went to the front door of the city. They opened up the gate from the inside out and there was the invading army. The invading army came in and in a matter of days, Sardis fell a second time. By the time Jesus writes this letter at the end of the first century, Sardis is a shell of what it once was. But still, the people of Sardis were very proud. They were living on a reputation of years gone by. They were living with a false sense of security and accomplishments and satisfaction. They were living uh, a life that said, we're okay. After all, we're the people of Sardis. What was happening in the city Apparently, it was also happening in the church. Apparently, that same level of pride, selfishness, sinfulness permeated the people of God in the, city of, in the church of Sardis just like it did in the city of Sardis. And apparently, along the way, there were watchmen who failed to sound the guard who failed to sound the alarm that the enemy was coming. There were preachers, there were uh, watchmen who failed to tell the people of God what to watch out for and what to be leery of and how to live and what to do and what to look for. And apparently the watchmen fell asleep at their post. And so the preaching wasn't very good in the church at Sardis. And the people weren't living holy lives in the church at Sardis. And the church of Sardis resembled the culture of Sardis. It was only alive by reputation. Jesus says... I know your deeds. 
You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. When he says that, I well imagine that Jesus is saying that the church looks more like a museum than a church. Have you ever been to a good museum? I'm talking about a good one. I'm talking about a one that where the exhibits look real. Have you been to those kind of museums? I mean, everything looks real. The monkey has his tree and the bear has his forest and the lion has his fields and the people look real. And you stand back there and you think to yourself, Whoa, watch out, that lion's going to eat you because it looks real. And then you look closer and go, oh, that's not real, that's fake. But it looks real, it looks alive, but it's phony, it's fake. When Jesus says, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, what he's saying is that the church has become more of a museum than a real, living, breathing body of Christ. If I could, I would board all of us this morning on an airplane and travel to Europe. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? I'll get on an airplane and go to Europe. And if we went there, you know what we could find? We could find beautiful cathedrals, beautiful churches that a few hundred years ago were packed with people and worship was going on and they were exalting the holy name of Christ. They were lifting up the glory of the Lord and they were praising uh, God, our Father and Savior and Holy Spirit. I mean, there were churches that were alive all throughout Europe. But today... Those cathedrals are more like museums than churches. They just tell you the story of what used to happen in those pews. What used to go on in those beautiful buildings. But the reality is you and I don't have to go to Europe to find that. I mean, we could still stay here in these great United States of America. We could go to the Northeast. I've been there. Many of you have been there. Been to places like Boston and Philadelphia. We could go to those glorious churches that that really were the cradle for two great awakenings in America's history. Two of the greatest revivals that has ever happened in this land and really throughout all the world. A tremendous time of awakening and revival. And now, those churches are a shell of what they used to be. Most of those ancient churches, those, those churches when uh, America was just in its colonial days, in, in those times, those small churches on the outside, they would have cemeteries. And you and I go today, and those cemeteries are still located there. And I want to submit to you that in many churches, the people on the inside are just as dead as those on the outside in the cemeteries. So if, if that could happen in Europe, and if that could happen on the eastern seaboard, could it happen here under the buckle of the Bible belt? Where people become so proud, so arrogant, so selfish, so self-sufficient and self-containing that they could almost believe themselves to be alive when in all actuality they're dead and Jesus could level a, a, a ferocious indictment against us. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are spiritually dead. You're on life support. You are gasping for your last breath. Could it be that Jesus would say that of you and me this morning? Have you, have you noticed how the condition of the churches has gotten progressively worse in these letters? The first letter is to the Ephesian church. They have an infection. They just have a, a, a little disease. They have forsaken their first love. What's the remedy? To repent and start doing the things you did at first. Then we traveled on, and eventually we got to Pergamum. 
They not only had an infection, they had a cancer. Outwardly, they faced external strife, but inwardly, they had moral decay, and it was eating up the body, and they had a cancer. Last week was Thyatira. Thyatira also had a cancer, but Thyatira refused treatment. You remember what Jezebel said? The Lord said of Jezebel, I have given her time to repent, but she was unwilling. What does that mean? Refused treatment. Jesus says, I'm the remedy. I can help. I can even help the Jezebel in your midst, but she has refused. So I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and anyone who commits adultery with her will also suffer intensely, which is great tribulation. Jesus ups the ante in the hopes of wooing us back unto himself. And then if that doesn't happen, then inevitably he will have to send a plague. And in that case, it would be the killing of of their children. And all that could have been averted had they simply received the treatment, but they avoided the treatment. And then today, we find a church that's on its deathbed. I mean, hospice has been called in. They're gasping for their last breath, if they're alive at all. And Jesus declares them to be dead as a doornail. Do you see the progression of the problem in the church? At first there's the illness and then it becomes a cancer and then the people get so arrogant that they refuse treatment and eventually refusing treatment of the cancer and the illness, eventually it will result in spiritual death. Jesus is describing what can happen to his church, his body, his his people. He doesn't tell us a lot about how the church got in this predicament, does he? Well, why should he? Time's of the essence. Why is he going to waste telling you how you got on your deathbed? Everybody knows you're on your deathbed, right? So he's not going to tell you how you got there, but he is going to tell you how to get out of there. Because the grace of the passage is this. I'll say it now, I'll say it at the end. So when I say it again, you know I'm already at the end, okay? So the grace of the passage is this, that the God of the gospel can bring life out of death. That's the grace of the passage. This church is dead on her deathbed, yet God is powerful enough to bring life out of death. So we are a hopeful people because God brings hope into hopelessness and help into helplessness because our God can make a way when there's no way. Our God can do the impossible. So we're the most hopeful people on the planet because God can bring life even out of death. So Jesus tells the church not how they got there, but how to get out of there how to get from that condition. He gives five directives, beginning in verse two. They are five imperatives. They're quick, they're short, they're direct, because after all, Jesus knows this is a life and death matter. He knows how serious your spirit condition is. You may not know it, but he does. Let me say that again. You may not know how urgent Your spiritual condition is today, but Jesus knows. And so Jesus doesn't waste any time. He gets right to the point. He tells the church five directives. The first one is the first imperative. It's in verse two, wake up. He's sounding the alarm clock. Wake up. He's putting a jolt into the system. Wake up. He's trying to restart the heartbeat of the church. Wake up. It's a word that means be watchful. It's a word that means uh, guard your yard. It's a word that means be at your post. Remember, the city of Sardis fell on one occasion because the watchman was not in his tower. Don't let that be the case for you. You be watchful. 
If one enemy soldier can take down a whole city, then what can just one little attack from the adversary do to you? If you're not watchful, if you're not awake, wake up, Jesus says. Secondly, he says, strengthen what remains. And it's about to die, but strengthen it. That word strengthen means to stand to its feet. Jesus is telling the church, take a stand. Take a stand on the gospel. Take a stand on the truth. Remember what you've been taught. So take a stand. Strengthen what remains. For I have found your deeds to be incomplete in the sight of God. When Jesus says to strengthen what remains for your work, your deeds are incomplete in the sight of God. Once again, he's reminding the, the church what's been going on in the city. I've told you before that in the city of Ephesus, there was a great glorious temple that was built to Artemis. Now, Artemis is a, a pagan goddess of fertility. Um, but the temple that was constructed there in Ephesus was a beauty to behold. In fact, it was one of the Seven wonders of the ancient world. Its beauty and splendor rivaled that of the mausoleum, of the hanging gardens of Babylon, of the pyramids in Egypt. It was a beautiful structure. The people of Sardis also attempted to build a temple to Artemis. But in Sardis, the temple never was completed. It was really a black eye to the city. Oh, they started the construction of this pagan temple. They built the foundation. They built some of the columns. But they never finished the project. What is Jesus saying to the church? Jesus is saying, what's been going on in your city has been going on in your life. Your deeds, your work, your efforts, um, your projects that you've done for me, they are incomplete. You are like a, a sparkler on the 4th of July. You started well, but now you're fizzling and fading. Jesus says, I know your deeds. Strengthen what remains because your work is incomplete in my sight. Today, we recognize our senior adults, and I'll tell you that the one thing I admire most about uh, senior adult, Christian senior adults, is their faithfulness unto the Lord. They show us what it looks like to run with perseverance to the very end. They do not fade, they do not flicker, they do not waste away, but they continue to serve the Lord. I admire my grandparents for those kind of reasons. I admire people like that who just continue. And by the time they're 80 or 90, they're more in love with the Lord than they were at 40 or 20 or 12. And for me, that is something that ought to be applauded. That is something that we ought to say, you know what? That's what it looks like to have completed projects and completed works unto the Lord. What's the indictment against the church? The indictment against the church at Sardis is that you look like your city. Your city has a black eye because it started a temple to a pagan goddess and it never completed the project. Well, you are not completing your project unto God very well either. So wake up, strengthen what remains. The third imperative or directive, remember what you've heard and been told. Remember, remember what you've been taught because what you've been taught can revive you. What you've been told, what you've been taught from God and from his word, it can revive you. So remember that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And remember that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that this is the very word of God without a mixture of error. Remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Remember that you should pray without ceasing. Remember that you should be on mission for the Lord. For as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching to observe everything I've commanded you. For surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And remember to not forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more as you see the day approaching. Remember what you've been taught. Remember what you've been told. Remember what you've heard about being kind and compassionate and loving and forgiving and intentional and instrumental in the life of other people. Remember what you've been told. It can revive you, Jesus says. So you must remember what you've heard. And Jesus says not only must you remember it, but then he says obey. That's the fourth directive. The NIV inserts the word it. There's no word for it. It's just a command that says obey. Now we know why the it is there. Obey it, it being what you've heard and what you've received. Obey, Jesus says. Oh, my friend, it's one thing to know what to do. It's another thing to actually do it. It's one thing for me to know I love my wife, Jane Ellen. It's another thing for me to show her that I love her. Jesus is saying the same thing. It's one thing for you to remember what you've been told. It's another thing for you to actually do it. We've been told to pray without ceasing, so do it. We've been told to share the gospel, so do it. We've been told to worship the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, so do it. We've been told to lead our homes in a godly way, so do it. We've been told for God to lead our agenda and set our calendar, so do it. It's one thing to remember, it's another thing to actually obey. And then the fifth thing Jesus says is what he says to every church, repent. Turn your back on sin. Stop tolerating your pride, he says to the church. Stop sweeping your arrogance under the carpet. Stop living on just a reputation of being alive. Stop living on just the accomplishments of yesteryear. Stop talking about the good old days of what church used to be like. Stop living in the past, Jesus. Repent of your sin. Now, maybe your sin is not the sin of Sardis. Maybe your sin is something of morality or anger or greed. Whatever the sin is, my friend, turn your back on it. Turn your back on sin. That's what it means to repent. Jesus is telling the church five rapid fire directives. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you've been told and taught. Obey it. Repent. Jesus says you do that and you'll live. I remember the words of Ken Blanchard. Ken Blanchard just simply said this. Right belief not delivered through action means squat. You may want to write that one down. Ken Blanchard said, right belief not delivered through action means squat. It doesn't mean anything. You can say, hey, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know how I'm supposed to live, but I'm not going to do it. Kim Blanchard said that just means squat. So why don't you, if you know it, why don't you just do it? Because if you don't know it, then the infection will lead to cancer and the cancer will lead to a treatment that's been offered to you. And if you refuse that treatment, then it will lead to your eventual death and coma and you'll be lying on your deathbed. So 
right belief must be discovered and revealed and delivered through your actions. Jesus not only tells the church what to do, but he tells the church why to do it. He says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you won't know the time, the day or the hour. Friend, it's never a question of if Jesus is going to come. The question is, when he comes, what will he find? It's not a question of if he comes. Oh, he's coming. He's coming. He will come for every person individually at death. He will come corporately for his church and his people at the point of rapture. He is coming. He's coming. I mean, you, you bet your bottom dollar, he's coming. But when he comes, what's he going to find? When he comes, what will he find in our community? When he comes, what will he find in this congregation? When he comes, what will he find in your homes? When he comes, what will he find in your marriage? When he comes, what will he find in your cupboards? When he comes, what will he find in your morality? When he comes, what will he find in your mind? When he comes, what will he find in your heart? When he comes, what will he find? Will he find life and vitality and faithfulness? Or will he find individuals who are living on a reputation of rich accomplishments in the past? When he comes, what will he find? Jesus may declare some of us to only be alive by reputation only. He may say that some are dead. For we're not doing anything for the Lord right now. The only thing we have is what we used to do. And Jesus says that we are a shell of the faithful saint that we used to be. So wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you've heard. Obey what you've been taught. Repent of sin. Jesus oftentimes is more concerned about your spiritual life than you're concerned about your spiritual life. Jesus does say this is not true for all the members of Sardis. There's a remnant. Always has been, always will be. There's always a faithful remnant. And Jesus is very graphic in his explanation. This is not G-rated. Jesus is very graphic when he says, not all of you have pooped in your pampers. That's literally what he means. Not all of you have soiled your clothes. Not all of you have soiled your garments. Not all of you have stunk it up by the way you're living. Not all of you have, uh, have filth in your life, in your morality, in your thinking, in your activity, in your attitudes. Not all of you are dead. There's a faithful remnant. Always has been, always will be. And Jesus gives a glorious promise to the faithful remnant. He says to those who overcome, according to, according to 1 John chapter 5, those who overcome are those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. To those who overcome, you will walk with me, Jesus says. I will introduce you to God the Father and his angels, and your name will never be erased from the Lamb's book of life. I don't know about you, but this is exciting to me. Jesus says, to those who are the faithful remnant, to those who are alive, to those who are overcomers, all those are synonymous. For those who are overcomers, for those who are alive, you will walk with Christ. 
This is the imagery of a victorious parade. Whenever uh, an army came back victorious from battle, it's the general who's at the front and behind the general are the soldiers who are on his side. That's us. Jesus is the general and we are the victorious soldiers and we're walking with Christ and we're dressed in robes of white, white being the symbol of purity and holiness. And Jesus himself will introduce us to God the Father. Here is Jim. Here is Sally. Here is Sarah. Here is Bob. Here is Bill. Here are your faithful servants, and we will hear from God the Father, well done, good and faithful servant. And your name, my name, will forever be etched in the Lamb's book of life. It is written by the blood of the Lamb. It's written with the blood of the Lamb. It is never to be erased. It is never to be sponged. It is never to be removed because we are once and forever in the Lamb's book of life because of our faith in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to strut with my Savior. I can't wait to hang out with the Holy One. I can't wait to laugh with the Lord. I can't wait to jump with Jesus. I cannot wait just to chill with my Christ. I cannot wait to be there with Him where I am walking with Jesus. He introduces me to the Father, and the Father says, Well done, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. The grace of the passage is that the God of the gospel can bring life out of death. That's tremendous. The God of the gospel can bring life out of death. He's been doing this from cover to cover. He's consistently demonstrating his power, his goodness, his glory. So that... God helped Elijah to raise the widow's son in Zarephath. Jesus burst onto the scene and he raised Jairus' daughter with just a couple of words, Talithakaum. Jesus stood in front of the grave of his best friend Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came hopping out of the grave. The most infamous story Jesus ever told is the one of the prodigal son. And the father is portrayed. And the father speaks these words. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The apostle Paul says in not only Ephesians but also Colossians. You were dead in your sin. But God in Christ has raised you to life. You were dead, but God has given you eternal life. You were dead, but God has raised your life. Our God of the gospel can bring life out of death. If you come in here today and you are on your spiritual deathbed, if you're in a spiritual coma, if holy hospice has been called on you, I want to tell you that's not the end of the road because my God, your God, can bring life out of death. So I heard an old, old story how a savior came from glory. 
He gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his moaning and his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sin and I won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew him and all my love is doing. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. Church, hear the alarm clock that is sounding from heaven today. Jesus is telling any member of Sardis that may be here at first Baptist Pelham, it is time to rise and shine. It's time to wake up. It's time to strengthen up. It's time to remember. It's time to obey. It's time to repent. Let's do it now. Don't wait for anything else. It is time. Let us rise and shine to the glory of God. So the only natural thing to do is to offer an invitation. And I invite you to come. May the altar be full. I ask you to come and to repent of sin, whatever it may be. Maybe it is a reputation of yesteryear. Maybe it is pride over what you've done in the past. Maybe it is just sheer rotten arrogance. I don't know, maybe it's lust, maybe it's greed, maybe it's envy, maybe it's anger, maybe it's just deceit. Whatever it is, my friend, please, take your spiritual condition as seriously as Jesus takes your spiritual condition. The alarm clock has sounded. Are you ready to rise and shine for the glory of God? Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. Please, Lord, help us to hear that jolt into reality. May you startle our senses today. May you wake us up where we were once asleep and dead. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.